Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Lost Labor's Love Edition. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm an editorial writer at the Journal and host of the show. It is January 16th, 2014, and here in the newsroom studio to talk with me about some of the biggest stories in provincial politics this week are columnist Paula Simons. Hello. Provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And provincial affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hi. I'm feeling like I've got a case of the January blahs, but happily there is plenty of not-so-blah stories to talk about that I hope will shake me out of my foul mood today. Um, There's plenty to talk about on the labor file, some of it held over from last week, so we'll start there. And then we have to talk about travel, particularly the major mission underway in India with Alberta's Premier and other government officials. But let's begin where I promised that we would pick up last week, which is with an update on the relationship between the provincial government and its unionized workers. There are two different issues to talk about here contract negotiations and pensions. So let's start with contracts. Miriam, you spent time last week sitting in on a labor relations board hearing. So can you bring us up to speed on why they were there and what was happening? This all goes back, obviously, to last fall with the government's introduction of Bill 46, the Public Sector Salary Restraint Act. I think I got that right. It's a mouthful, but yes. Sure is. Obviously, that that's the bill that uh, applies uh, solely to the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees. It takes away their right to go to binding arbitration uh, for the current deal that's uh, their current contract talks, the negotiations that are going on right now. And it would also, it could legislate a wage deal by January 31st. So that's coming up pretty soon. Uh, In response to that, the uh, union filed a complaint of bad faith bargaining against the province. And so uh, last week we had those hearings um, beginning and uh, the union had tried to get Premier Alison Redford and Deputy Premier Dave Hancock and Finance Minister uh, Doug Horner to appear as witnesses at that hearing. That attempt failed. However, uh, Peter Watson, Deputy Minister of Executive Council, which includes the Premier's office, was um, uh, did testify. And so we and he's we got a to top hear- civil servant to the province, mm-hmm. right? That's right. That's right. And so uh, we got to hear from him about the maneuvers that the province was sort of going through as the uh, negotiations were ongoing with the union. Okay, Graham, at this point, who would you say has a more persuasive case? It's interesting. The government is apparently trying to bypass its own arbitration system because it seems the government's afraid the arbitrator will say that the unions are entitled to a wage increase. And the government's been trying to freeze wages now for the last year with doctors and and, uh, teachers. And it'd be pretty difficult for them to explain why an independent arbitrating process would give the unions a a wage increase. It seemed to say that the government's um, policy is unfair. So it's interesting. I think right now uh, the union has a, a very persuasive case because they should let the process run its course. Let the arbitrator get involved if need be and make a settlement. And it seems the government's actually stepping on its own process here because it's afraid it's not actually working the way it wants it to work. These hearings are going on. Is it possible that this whole thing might be unnecessary? Because I did see from Canadian Press's Dean Bennett today a story that the the two sides are actually back at the bargaining table. They are back at the bargaining table this week. The union has said that the the province has offered a, a deal that is marginally better than the one that's included in, in Bill 46, the one that could come into force by January 31st. But they say that it's still nowhere near meeting their demands. Uh, and I think ultimately they, they do want to see the, the Labor Relations Board hearing through because their argument from, from the beginning has been that the province even before negotiations had seen their course, uh, was already sort of planning for the potential of a legislated deal. 
And, and that's always been the argument. I mean, this, but this, this goes to the heart of the bad faith bargaining issue. I mean, did the province impose this legislation as the ultimate hardball tactic to get them back to the bargaining table and to say, see, if you don't, you know, if you don't give us, you know, if you don't compromise on this, whoa, we're going to, we're going to hit you with this one. That's of course what they're doing. So, you know, to say none of this was necessary, it's all part of the kabuki theater that is this complex labor negotiation. But does that mean the province was bargaining in bad faith? I think prima facie it does. Right. Well, so did I hear correctly that they had started work on this legislation in February or last winter? Uh, well, what came out at the Labor Relations Board hearing was that a group of civil servants was brought together in February by the Deputy Minister of Finance. And they began work on a number of different policy options, which may or may not have included legislation. Now, that group then in April began drafting um, some form of, began looking at the, at the potential for legislation, and then sort of throughout the year in May, and then uh, later on in October, they, they asked um, a government committee, the Public Sector Resources Committee, if they wanted to hear about this uh, legislative option. The committee did a, get a briefing on it in October, and then in November, they gave the sort of recommendation to cabinet that they should pursue legislation. And ultimately, that green light was given on November 25th, and the legislation dropped on November 27th. So as this has been going on about current contracts, or I guess the contract that's been expired since March 31st, another branch of government, I guess, has been talking about a whole different debate with unions about what kind of benefits they should receive once they retire, or at least how those benefits should be paid for. What's going on there, Graham? Uh, yeah, this is the public sector pension plans. There's about 330,000 either current workers or retired workers are covered by the um, this, these, these pension plans. Government says they're unfunded. Uh, there's $7.4 billion worth. Um, these pension funds are not properly funded. So the government's saying, look, we're going to have to... That's worrying. They're saying they're going to have to... That's a huge, huge shortfall. They're going to have to, they said, um, cut, cut back the pensions. Um, either have uh, fewer people retire early, um, maybe get less benefits when they actually do retire. Unions are saying, look, hold on for a second. Th these funds are okay. There's a shortfall right now, but there's actually a plan right now in place to make sure they're funded relatively soon, in the next few years. So you get the unions saying there's no need to, to touch these pension plans. The government's saying we have to touch them. We can't afford them. Um, and so they're at, at loggerheads over this. And the government's actually um, uh, threatened, if I can use that uh, word, to bring in um, a bill in this, the spring session to try and change the pension plans. Now, the minister responsible is Doug Horner, and uh, he's saying he's willing to talk to the unions about this, but they're feeling the government's doing this, um, this is the way to try and save money and just to bash unions for the sake of um, ideology. And this this was back in the news this week because of a, a report that the organized labor put out, right, Miriam? What what did they what specifically were they saying in that report? The report was written by um, an actuarial firm in Vancouver, Georgian Bell, and it essentially says that um, the best option right now for the public sector pensions, and it looks at two of them. Obviously, the province has four. There are four, sorry, in the province, and it looks at two of the largest two that rep that uh, cover. The majority of, of um, workers and they say uh, the best option is to do nothing because the uh, long-term forecasting even on the even even the most you know pessimistic outlook shows that within the next you know nine to twelve years that unfunded liability will disappear the finance minister didn't buy that though right yeah he, he is I mean, he essentially said that they the report you know didn't include all the information uh, which it didn't it didn't have access to all of the data it was it was it was a report written by an outside firm it's an independent report they didn't have access to everything 
He said that he still wants to talk to talk to the the unions about this, but he's also said that he's been hearing from people saying that the current contribution that they've had to make every month is too high. Here's the problem, right? I mean, there is a huge public policy value in the government and the unions sitting down and making very, very certain that these public pensions are going to be there for the people who rely on them. And the government has to do that responsibly. But if it doesn't have the confidence of the workers that it has their best interests at heart, that it's only trying to do this to somehow save money in the short term, this is not going to work. In the meantime, I think the unions are also really up against it because I think most people don't work for the public sector. And most people don't have these kinds of rich pensions. And so when the unions say, oh, poor us, we're not going to have all of these benefits, those of us, oh, say, like me and like you who don't have pensions and say, well, wait a minute. Um, out here in the real world, those expectations are not reasonable. I think technically I am part of Postmedia's pension plan, but I'm not sure the finance minister is going to make sure it's there for me. So, Graham, do <laughs> well, you do you? I was going to say that you, you mentioned that there are rich pensions. These people make an average a thousand dollars a month is the average pension. Which no, is well, you know, that's that's a lot more than than most people are going to get yeah, when they retire. Okay, well, but the thing is, then should we then lower their their pensions, or we should make a point of governments and working to make sure that we all have pensions of some kind, um, as opposed to lowering their bar when it raises the bar no, for the I, public? I, no, I'm, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying either of those things. What I'm saying is that the government should be acting prudently to protect those plans. It can't do that without the confidence of the unions. And the unions have to know that if they're coming to the general public and saying, you know, this is our hill to die on, I don't think they're going to have overwhelming public sympathy. Actuaries everywhere will be very happy that we just had a spirited debate about <laughs> pensions and the future of pensions. Now let's see if we can warm the hearts of travel agents and talk about <laughs> a, a trip, uh, the, another trip that... Uh, a the passage to India. That's right. That <laughs> Alberta is once again trying to make its mark on the international stage, and uh, some of our most important politicians are away. Graham or Miriam, care to share where Premier Alison Redford is today? Uh, well, she so she's currently in India. She's she's there. She's been there uh, for the last several days. I think on a six day trip, um, she's met with uh, business officials, uh, government officials, um, and um, the I guess delegation of um, uh, Alberta politicians and business leaders uh, attended um, a conference called PetroTech, which is a uh, oil and sort of natural gas uh, industry conference that's put on by India's oil ministry. Um, as well, they opened their new India trade office, so it's the latest in a long line of trade offices that have been opened up around the world in countries like Korea and uh, obviously in Washington. There's one in Germany, I believe. Um, and, um, you know, they've signed some agreements. They've met with, you know, as I said, uh, she's met with the uh, India's oil minister to talk about potential for investment in Alberta's oil sands. Um, they've been very busy, it seems. So th the Alberta government officials have spent a lot of time in China in the last couple of years. I don't recall another trip to India. Maybe there has been one. But how important is this mission, Graham? And, and is this why does this matter? Or does it? <laughs> That's a good question. These things are really hard to quantify um, because it's not as if they're getting a a trade deal signed at the end of it or during it worth X amount of dollars. They're going there um, hoping to open up more trade with, uh, with uh, Alberta and these other countries, and we don't know if, in fact, it's going to work. Um, it's an investment that has uh, maybe years before it pays off. Uh, I think it's important for Alberta to try and find other, other um, avenues, other places they can sell the, our, our products. But you do get the impression that 
this is also because the Premier loves to travel, and she really does like to travel. Um, she's been to Washington four or five times, of course, China, India, uh, Europe, you name it. Um, she enjoys traveling the world, meeting the heads of state, rubbing elbows with some rich and famous and powerful people. After her trip to India, she goes to Switzerland and... Uh, I think that uh, this yeah, again she'll, she'll be at for skiing. For, is she no, skiing? No. What's she doing? She's there? participating on a panel at the World Economic Forum. Oh, and okay. Well, that this, that's significant. She likes doing this kind of thing, and I think that I've heard it. Uh, she's her office has asked different departments to find reasons for her to travel. Okay, I, you know, I I always think that these trips are about energy, but then the first two press releases seem to be more about swine genetics from the India trip. Paula, as someone watching this from a bit, a bit away, what do you think about this well, trip? Well, you know, I think India is an incredibly important economy. Uh, you know, we've spent a lot of time focusing on China. India's economy is booming. India's economy is growing. We have a huge South Asian population in Alberta. It's really important that we have strong ties to India. It's important in terms of our immigration policy, in terms of the skilled workers we're bringing in from India, not just in terms of the oil and gas that we might be able to sell there in the future. So it is important that we not ignore an emerging economy and that we expand so that we're not always dependent on the United States or Western Europe for our, our trade relations. Yeah, that's that said, I was surprised <laughs> to see it was only, you know, they say only $102 million worth of products and services are exported from Alberta to India. That does seem low to me considering I how mean, big India is. I mean, is. India is a huge economy and it's, you know, it, it you know, not just in terms of, uh, of oil and gas, but in terms of their high-tech sector, in terms of all kinds of important trading relationships we ought to be building. Whether the way to build those trade relationships is with these kinds of formal junkets is an entirely separate question. And tied into this is the fact we've got, we're going to have 16 trade offices all over the world. These are full-time offices. We've got more than a dozen right now. We've got more being, in fact, her trip right now, she opened one in New Delhi. They're in Singapore. They're Hong Kong. They're in Chicago. Um, San Francisco is another new one, right? Coming up, we've got Ottawa, of course, as well, um, and London. And again, this ties into the government uh, trying to increase trade. Um, but it also uh, it, it does it shows us the government wants to actually be a world player. And I agree with Paula. There's nothing wrong with that. It's important for me to, to see the politicians get out there. And then they can hear what the government thinks of uh, what they think of Alberta and things like climate change and the oil sands. If we're going to be world players, should we get a better cell phone plan, though? Oh Anyone? my gosh! Anyone? Oh my gosh! Miriam, do you want to do you want to tell us about the latest the cell the cell phone catastrophe that, uh, that sure. the Herald revealed? Yeah. So I guess when the Herald was sort of looking into uh, travel expense records, uh, they found a fourteen thousand dollar cell phone bill. Uh, I guess the result <laughs> of roaming charges uh, incurred by. Um, Minister Diana McQueen while she was in Europe. <laughs> Reporters here have been stung by this too. I mean, there's an argument to be made that roaming charges are completely outrageous, but you know, there's a reason why when we travel on journal business, we're not allowed to either, you know, either bring the phone or have it on airplane mode or whatever it is that you do to avoid the roaming charges. It's basic common sense. That said, I hope the Alberta government is fighting hard to see if they can dispute some of those roaming charges. And the thing is, if they manage to, you're right, they manage to um, have the charges drop, then they're okay. If they don't, they'll go down in history like they're um, paying $113,000 last year, two years ago, in the Olympics. Right. Empty hotel rooms. For hotel rooms that never used. That's $113,000. This will be the same sort of thing. I was showing competence on the part of the government. Let's move to good stuff from the gallery. 
This is where we give you a good political read or recommendations for something that we enjoyed watching that had a political connection or even something to listen to. Um, Paula, would you like to start today? I would like to start today, and I will not sing, although I think I have a better voice than Neil Young, and I don't think that's setting the bar very high. I'm going to suggest that people... uh, Burn. Burn. (laughs) You know what? Never mind what he thinks about the oil sands. Can't stand the man's music. I'm sorry. I just can't. If that makes me a bad Canadian, so be it. I don't like Tim Horton's donuts either. So I'm she gonna, may have to be barred from. I am going panels. to suggest that if you want to be, uh, you know, an informed Canadian, you need to read uh, Andrew Leach's uh, blog post this week on Maclean's Magazine's Econo Watch. Andrew Leach is an economist at the University of Alberta uh, who specializes in the energy industry. Uh, he's written a great blog post called Neil Young, the Oil Sands, and the Damage Done: The Real Damage in the Rock Stars Honor the Treaties Tour, in which Dr. Leach makes an argument that because of Young's scaremongering and hyperbole, he's distracting from really serious questions we need to ask about the way the Jack Pine development was approved and the uh, possible environmental consequences. I mean, Leach is really interesting. He straddles a line between being an economic pragmatist and somebody who actually has serious questions about the environmental regulation in this province. And he makes a really good argument that you know, when Neil Young is comparing us to Hiroshima and indulges in all this other hyperbole, it's very easy to write off the concerns of the Aboriginal community. It's very easy to write off the environmental concerns, you know, that we can mock Neil Young for his extravagant language. And in so doing, uh, we ignore the really uh, serious questions that are raised by Jack Pine's potential impact on the watershed. Economists and actuaries in one episode are getting a lot of love. <laughs> Miriam, how about you? What have you been... Um, my suggestion is also from McLean's. It's uh, Aaron Wary's Beyond the Commons column about uh, Brent Rathgaber, the Hill's unlikely maverick. And uh, Wary followed Rathgaber for parts of his Broken Democracy tour. Obviously, he, former Conservative member of Parliament, is now sitting as an independent and um, intends to run on an independent as an independent in the next election. That so, is going to be really interesting to see. Yeah, and it was a, an interesting read, sort of. Um, you know what sort of propelled Rathgaber to do what he did in um, in in stepping away from the Conservative caucus. And he hasn't disappeared. That's the thing. Sometimes people go as independents and they disappear, never to be heard from again. But he's maintaining a pretty high profile and for using an social media campaign. to do so very well. He, uh, Rathgaber himself had an excellent uh, provocative blog post mm-hmm. this week about the way we regulate prostitution in this country. Something he certainly would never have been able to say as a Tory backbencher. He's, well, bo- he's a book coming out as well this year. And oh. in fact, this piece sort of talks a lot about that blog and 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 how that blog and and a lot of those posts that the PMO the Prime Minister's office didn't really like how that propelled him sort of towards his final decision. And now he's become sort of a spokesman for the, the, the backbench MPs who have been, you know, feeling they've been pushed aside. As I mentioned, he's got a book coming out sometime, I think in the summer, he's hoping to have a book out on broken democracy. Okay. I'm going to recommend something from the Globe and Mail that was in the focus section last week. It was a profile of Thomas Mulcair called Agent Orange, and it's written by John Ibbotson, who apparently is just going on a year leave to write a book on uh, something on Stephen Harper, I think it said at the end of the story. So there'll be more Harper books coming out. So this profile, just the summary really says it all. It says he's no charmer, he has no name cachet, and his party is often maligned for its tax and spend legacy. But despite all this, and also despite having a beard, Ibbotson says Mulcair may be the one on Parliament Hill to watch. And I'm reading that with 
rereading that with interest right now because uh, Thomas Mulcair apparently is coming to the journal's editorial board next week. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to make sure I'm up on all things Thomas Mulcair. But this was a, a good read in its own right and a profile on a politician I feel like I'm still trying to get to know. And so I recommend it. It's called Agent Orange by John Ibbotson. Graham, last but not least. Yes, thank you. Um, a book I've been reading, I haven't finished it, I'm into it uh, for Christmas, was called um, Thank You for Your Service. It's written by American um, journalist David Finkel. It's a follow-up to his book, The Good Soldiers, um, about the Americans in Iraq. Mm. And his book, um, Thank You for Your Service, is he calls it the, the post-war period, or after war. So the soldiers are coming home, and just how they're readjusting to life in the U.S. And the preface was written by Romeo Dallaire, the former oh. Canadian general. Also, there's also an introduction written by Carol Off, um, Canadian journalist. So oh, wow. there's a Canadian angle in this. And in the introduction, they're saying, even though it's written about Americans, um, this could be written about Canadians as well, fighting in, in Afghanistan, how they come home. And uh, so really, it's amazingly well written. Finkel is a brilliant writer. Well, and you must have a different perspective on that for me because you actually spent some time in Afghanistan with Canadian soldiers. Right, I was there twice. Um, and I, I, it, rings a, it does ring true because um, a lot of soldiers came back either badly hurt physically or emotionally hurt. And when we were there, a lot more things happened that we could actually report on. We weren't allowed to report on soldiers who got wounded. If they were killed, we could report on that. If they were wounded, became this. Um, th- they wouldn't let us report on a lot of things that actually happened. So a lot more soldiers than we realize actually got hurt over there. So for every soldier who was killed, dozens were, were injured. And even more than that were actually coming back emotionally um, injured. So this book is really well written. It's called um, Thank You for Your Service. I'd recommend both of Finkel's books. The other one is Good Soldiers, but the actual um, fighting in, in Iraq as well. Thank you for those recommendations, everyone. Those all sound really fantastic. So, I enjoyed the quiz show edition of our podcast so much. We're going to conclude with me quizzing you on how our listeners can find the various options. If people want to find the podcast on the Edmonton Journal's homepage, what section do they go to? The press gallery. They go to the press gallery, that's right. And what section will they find it under? It's not news, it's... It's Opinion. That's right, that's right. And where else can you find the podcast? What other providers? iTunes. That's right. And you can subscribe, that's right. And if they are to look on the iTunes page, Graham, what should they do? Oh, I can't believe you don't listen to me every single time. They should like it. And they they should post comments because that will move us up the queue. They should subscribe to it. That's right. So far, Paula and Miriam are winning again. But on the last thing, we do have a Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash... The Press Gallery. That's right. The Press Gallery. And you can like us on Facebook, Sarah. That's right. And I've committed to telling people on Facebook first when our podcast is up and ready to listen to on Fridays. So thanks everyone. Graham, it's okay. They'll be that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Paula, the trophy will be coming very shortly. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week.